As we together gather for worship, would you please join me for a moment of prayer? Lord, you know our hearts. You know our minds. You know us like the back of your hand. You see us as we are and always choose us. We pray and you know already our every thought, every worry, every joy, and you invite us to know you more. We pray to you today with a longing to know you more, to connect more with the calling you have set before us. You have called us to a higher cause than just to be forgiven. You have called us to forgive. As enactors of Jesus' example and witnesses of the love we've experienced, to forgive our enemies and pray for the ones who persecute us. Your love, which transcends the realm of impossible for us, calls us to love in perhaps the hardest ways, offering freely what we have in service of others. You call us to forgive others, however difficult for us it may be, to enact your impossible love in our witnessing and recognize that those people who are difficult to love, whatever that may look like to us, whoever those people are, are your precious children of God alongside us. Those people are us. We are all longing for God's transforming grace. Allow us in our acts of forgiveness on this day, our love, our cheek turning, the giving away of our coats and shirts and goods and whatever else we hold back, allow our selfless love that transcends all boundaries in your name to be only a reflection of you only a blessing in your eyes. Allow us to be transformed into mercy as you are merciful and let the blessings and grace we grant everyone around us to transform us as your people. Train us to witness in your likeness in recognition of the forgiveness granted us through Christ Jesus so that our ceaseless forgiveness others may see and turn to you. Amen. Every 
into this gentle and tender moment of, of presence that you have stepped into as you have opened your lives, if you've opened your hearts to the presence of God as we have been so beautifully led this morning to meet God right here. We remember words that Jesus speaks that confront us, that illuminate for us, in many ways, the, the most powerful conflict that exists in our lives, about how far we are willing to take this selflessness that Jesus calls those who would follow him to live out. And so in presenting us with what is, at the same time, easily understood, a command that is also something that demands a great deal of explanation. Because for us, it is so counterintuitive. It is counter to the very way we are inclined instinctively to act in this world. Love your enemies. So we hear several verbs today. The three we're going to anchor our reflections in today 
are verbs that are action-oriented, that take us from a place of idleness or rest or hiding and take us back out into the world, not just among those we know, we love, we have affection for, affinity for, and all the rest, but also those who rub us the wrong way. Perhaps those who have mistreated us, those who misunderstand us. Hear these words from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through uh, 38. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Of course, this is a very familiar command of Jesus, but it came to life for me in a new way a couple of months ago at my monthly prayer time with my clergy group. We are capably led, actually, by Larry Glover Wetherington, who always begins that prayer time with a time of reflection on Scripture. And in silence, we listen to how God is speaking into our lives. And as I reflected on that phrase, Love your enemies, do good uh, to those who harm you. Love, bless, ultimately forgive. I realized how wayward my own perspective has become about such things. When I realized that Jesus, instead of simply asking those who follow him to take whatever abuse the world lodges at them, instead to take a step out among them and to do things. And of course, we spend a lot of time, uh, usually right before bed, reviewing the day. And if you are like me, sometimes you'll review the day, and no matter how many good things have happened, you're going to remember that one thing someone said or that one thing someone did, uh, and, and, and all of a sudden it occurs to you, I should have said that. Oh, oh, that would have been great. That would have put her in her place. That would have, that would have uh, pushed him back enough. Perhaps that would have persuaded him. And we live in this fantasy world that, that ruminates mostly on revenge, or at least making things even. 
evening out the, the imbalance that we feel when someone has gotten the better of us, or we feel embarrassed, or we feel hurt, or we feel in some way vulnerable. Today, Jesus is calling us to act, but to act in ways that push back against that human temptation to settle the score for ourselves. And so we hear today these words from what is called the Sermon on the Plain. And this is the same in some ways. It carries a lot of the same teachings, but is also quite different than Matthew's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And so we hear it in its own voice. The verses that precede what we read today, uh, Jesus talks about blessings. They are beatitudes. And they are blessings that come when we are transformed and our situations are transformed by our connection to Christ. And so alongside those blessings, he also warns us of connecting to other things, particularly connecting only to our own selves. And so unlike Matthew's Beatitudes, Luke's Sermon on the Plain also tells us how Jesus proclaimed some woes out there. For those at W-O-E, not woe, woe, woe to you if you rely on yourself. If your primary relational connection is only to yourself. Jesus is speaking explicitly to his disciples. Perhaps they have ears to hear. He's also speaking to a crowd. Perhaps they might overhear. But in the blessings that Jesus spins out for them, he can start to see how discipleship is built in many ways in connection to what it is we do receive. But at the same time, we're reminded today that Jesus also asks us to consider what it is we are going to give. And so following Jesus isn't simply about receiving the blessings that come from the sacrificial life to which he has called us. It's not simply about what God will give us or does give us, but also is a stern call for us to give of ourselves out to the world as a gift to God. And this is very different than the way we've usually been raised. We've usually been raised in our society. We've been raised in most of our relationships to have some level of reciprocity. Even to do good things, we sort of do them because in some way we might get something back from someone else. And of course, Jesus tells us in that golden rule that I read today that we should treat others in the way that we would hope that they would treat us, that at least becomes a standard by which we can evaluate some of our regular actions in day-to-day -day life. But that very common way of looking at reciprocity is usually motivated in some way by our need to gain something, to get love from those we love. We'll lend, but to those who can definitely pay it back, and maybe we can borrow from them. Doing good to those who know how to do good to us. You always think about the Godfather in these times. Someday in this day may never come, I may ask a favor of you. That's classic 
reciprocity. But it has its limits. When Martin Luther King Jr.'s house was burned down and people were calling for some sort of revenge, he said, when you live by the rule of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, you end up with a nation of blind and toothless people. Reciprocity has its limits. And so instead today of thinking first about our relationships being built transactionally as a matter of reciprocity, I'll do good if you do good, I'll scratch my back if you scratch yours, we are instead invited by Jesus further into a very different way of understanding our place in the world and our understanding of our place in God's creation and in God's kingdom. Our place exists because of our connection to and our unity with Christ. Jesus says it at the end. You are children of the most high God. Our Father is merciful. And so you will be merciful. And so we're not just communicating with our actions how we desire to be treated. We are also communicating out to the world, just as Danny said and as, as Mackenzie prayed so beautifully. We are communicating a deep truth about who God is and how God communicates and lives with us. How did Paul capture it in his letter to the Romans? But by saying God demonstrates God's own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we don't forgive, we don't bless, we don't love because we're altruistic. We don't do it because we are such good people. We forgive because we've come to understand that we also need forgiveness. We bless because we know that we need blessings. We love because we know that they there is a place in our lives that can only be filled by the transforming love of God. We show mercy because we know we would be lost without the abundant mercy that's been shown to us. We do unto others what we want them to do to us because there is no other way to break the cycles of evil and violence and retribution and transactional relationships in the world that are keeping us from a deep and abiding communion together with God. So how do we love someone who's unlovable? It's a good question. Have you figured it out? I haven't quite figured it out myself. But I'm learning. And one of the places that I'm learning to do that is in my own prayer life. Because there's no place readier to teach us about how to navigate the conflicts in our own souls and our own spirits than in our life of prayer. When we take prayer seriously as a journey with God, very often as we begin to pray, we find it rather sweet and we find it rather easy. But the longer we pray, what we find is that it actually becomes more challenging and more difficult sometimes full of silences and darknesses that we did not expect. Prayer, as it grows in our life, grows because, in part, 
it becomes more and more filled with distractions and temptations and conflicts that would lead us away from focusing our vision upon the one to whom we are devoting ourselves. That's why some people talk about prayer as a battle. There's a a great piece of wisdom uh, from John of the Cross, a, a mystic from the Middle Ages. And he was writing about how in worship he found himself powerfully distracted over and over and over again. And perhaps you are too. You're thinking about you know, what the line is going to be like at lunch, or you're thinking about this, or you're thinking about that, or you're carrying some frustration into this place. That's why we always say just do your best to set it down. Not because I'm so important I need to be heard, not because the music is awesome and needs to be heard, but all of these things are competing for your attention on the one to whom we have met to meet. Prayer can be that way. And the longer you stand in prayer and exist in prayer, the more you realize that the world, our minds, our hearts, our urges, our passions are all competing for attention there. And the task of prayer is to begin learning how to lay all that at Jesus' feet. How was it prayed for today? Everything that we have, our shirts, our shoes, everything laid before God. That's how Henry Nouwen talks about prayer at all. He says at its, at its ultimate, prayer is being naked and alone before God. That's a powerfully vulnerable image. I've experienced it once, not in prayer, but in my doctor's office years ago. I went in for my annual physical, and the nurse showed me to the examination room. She said, you go ahead and get undressed, and gave me the tiniest little tea towel to use sort of as a modesty cover. And so there I sat on the examination table with my little towel Uh, And I heard knock, knock, and I thought it was Dr. Farr, and she's cool. I was ready for her to come in. And who comes bopping in but a member of my church who runs the office in that practice? (laughs) I saw your name on the census. I thought I'd come by and say hi. Now's not the time. But she didn't get the hint right away. She just kept talking and wanted to see how boys were doing. I'm, gotta go. naked and alone (laughs) before God. It's a vulnerable image. But when we become that vulnerable, when we set down all the things that we would use to arm ourselves, cover ourselves, distract ourselves, and all the rest, powerful, transforming work takes place. We have to learn to wait for it. We have to learn to endure through it. But when we are prepared to persevere, waiting on God in prayer, despite the temptations, we become purified, we become refined in such a way that we are ready and prepared to receive that one who comes to us when we least expect it. And that love will gradually lead us on a path that transforms us not into the best version of ourselves but more into an earthly representation 
of God's own self in Jesus. Christ-likeness. Love. Bless. Forgive. If you go back in the Old Testament, you read the story of, of Joseph. We find that his brothers just, they wanted to kill him for a lot of reasons. And many of those reasons, really, I can't blame them. Joseph was a spoiled brat. He was his dad's favorite. They had to work, and Joseph would get to hang around the house and do a whole lot of nothing. Joseph, at that time, was the youngest. He was the lowest, sort of in the hierarchy of things in the family, but his father bought a special coat just for him. It was given to him, colorful and beautiful, and Joseph loved to swagger around and show his brothers what the dad had given them given him and not them and on top of that joseph would have dreams dreams that he loved to retell his brothers and his whole family he told them how the rest of his family even the entire universe was someday going to bow down to him it was too much the brothers finally decided they would be better off if they could just do away with him but instead of killing him they sell him into slavery joseph ends up in egypt the brothers think they're totally done with them. Just a little white lie that's awfully dark, telling their father that he had died. But that was just the beginning of Joseph's hard journey. He was bought by a high official, and he worked for him until one day that official's wife tried to seduce Joseph. When he refuses to give in, she accuses him of rape, and Joseph's thrown into prison. He was there for two years before, simply by happenstance, he's brought before Pharaoh again to interpret some of Pharaoh's dreams. But because of his wisdom and his discernment, of course, you know the story. He's eventually elevated to a place of honor there in Egypt. And he oversees a great public works project. And they set aside a portion of all the proceeds that are produced there in the land in preparation for a time of famine, which does come. And Joseph is a hero at least in Egypt. After two years of famine, he is still sitting pretty. His family, his brothers, who had abused and abandoned him, they're not doing so well. Finally, they make the long journey down to Egypt to buy grain. He recognizes them. You'll never forget the face of someone who hurts you that badly. But they don't recognize him. What's he going to do? Much like that prayer journey, can you imagine all of the temptations that are scrolling through his mind and his heart in that moment? All of the power is in his hand. So these aren't mere fantasies anymore. He could get exactly what he wants to settle the score finally and fully with them. The feelings certainly are surfacing. And the question remains, what would he do? What would you do? Well, we know what he did. In the end, he reveals himself to his brothers. He calls them close. He embraces them. And all of those thoughts of revenge, of settling the score, 
of maintaining a family torn apart by its internal conflict is now restored with joy. And Joseph, when he summarizes it all, summarizes it in a simple word. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. That is the story of Jesus' cross. The cross which has called us all to this place to know who God is in the face, in the voice, in the life, in the work, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus. It is a relationship built on love and blessing and forgiveness. It's the revelation that love finally and fully is the only thing that can overcome our hate. And blessing is the only thing that can overcome cursing. Forgiveness is the only act that can ultimately set a wrong right. Joseph had a sense about this long ago. He forgave, he blessed, he loved. But Genesis, when we read it, doesn't hold Joseph up as the final hero. I think if we could sit down with Joseph even now, he'd say, no, 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 I'm no hero. What the story tells us, I think, is that God was at work. That God was at work redeeming the broken and conflicted relationships in this family. From that first betrayal of Joseph, from Joseph's own immaturity and swagger, finally healing a breach that could not be healed any other way. God is the prime actor in that story. Joseph is obedient. And so in that moment, Joseph's behavior becomes like God. He becomes a reflection of God's own love in the world because he was rejected by his people. He was treated and suffered unjustly. And nevertheless, Joseph forgives, just as God forgives and blesses and loves. And this is a great old story, but it comes to us now. What happens in our lives when we trust God's way with us, too? What happens when we meet those chronically conflicted circumstances with love and with blessing, with forgiveness? What happens then? Well, we, too, become signs. Signs of God's reign, evidence of our citizenship in God's kingdom. We become Christ-like. We are Christians. And sometimes it feels good. I'll be, I'll be honest. When you can overcome your own prejudices, your bias, your hurts, and you meet it with a certain amount of grace, that can feel really good. Sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes loving and forgiving and blessing hurts. And there's no other way through it. And so we are called to love 
not because we want to do others any kind of favor. We love because we have been loved. We love because the love with which we have been loved is transforming us from those who in all their vulnerability have been brought close into the very life of God. And that is good news. Thanks be to God. Amen. We come to our time of response. It is a time for us to practice our generosity as we give of ourselves. And it is an invitation to you to begin to imagine a new way from this place into your life. You probably all can see the face or hear the voice of that person with whom you are in conflict. Does it have to be that way? What will it take to set down your weapons, your needs, and take on the person of Christ and entrust, believe a different way as possible.